Well, I preached here the 1st of January, and a lot of you were not here, so I guess you had a wonderful New Year's Eve. Sure. <laughs> My name is uh, Cornelius Johnson. I'm, I'm a Navy chaplain. I'm stationed in uh, San Diego, on the USS San Diego. I've been there for about a year and a half, and July will be two years. It looks like I'll be transitioning back to Washington, D.C. this summer, working with the Coast Guard, so looking forward to that. Um see what else. Oh, I was hoping my wife could join me this morning, but she is sick. Uh, pray for her. She has, you know, what happened yesterday we went out and um, it was cold. It was colder than we thought. And I don't know, but she wasn't feeling this well this morning. I was sick last weekend. So, but it's okay to shake my hand. You're good. So, you know, just have the, uh, the, uh, the, what's that antibacterial soap in the back. You'll be good. So no, I'm just joking. So, all right, well, that's a little bit about me. Um, I normally attend Harvest OPC when I'm not preaching. That's in um, Escondido, San Diego, with uh, Pastor Eric Watkins. And so um enjoy worshiping there. So it's always been good to be here. I just, um, I've been, I've been coming here off and on since 2015. I was stationed in 29 Palms, and I remember um, there was no churches out there in the desert. No Reformed churches. I used to come here, and it was great. Uh, this is before even uh, Pastor Peter Mocha came, and I used to preach, you know, every now and then, uh, just helping out. And then when Pastor Peter came, he invited me at least once every, seems like once a year I come. So I've always enjoyed coming out here. Look forward to it. Uh, Matt is playing hooky, so, but that's, that's another story. I don't have anyone to harass in my sermon now, so that'd be it. <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> All right. With that being said, now we'll turn our attention to the Word of God. I actually turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 9, right after Psalms and Proverbs chapter 9. We'll read the whole chapter. All right, Ecclesiastes chapter 9, and we'll read all the way through 18, the whole chapter. Now let's hear the Word of God. For I considered all this in my heart so that I could declare it all, that the righteous and the wise and their works are in the hand of God. People know neither love nor hatred by anything they see before them. All things come alike to all. One event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good, the clean, and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As is the good, so is the sinner. He who takes an oath as he who offers an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that one thing happens to all. Truly, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil. Madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. But for him who is joined to all the living, there is hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no reward for the memory of them is forgotten. Also, their love, their hatred, and their envy have now perished. Nevermore will they have a share in anything done under the sun. Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already accepted your works. Let your garments always be white and let your head lack no oil. Live joyfully with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life which he has given you under the sun. All your days of vanity, for that is your portion in life, and in the labor which you perform under the sun. 
Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you are going. I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to men of understanding, nor favor to men of skill, but time and chance happens to them all. For man also does not know his time, like fish taken in a cruel net, like birds caught in a snare. So the sons of men are snared in an evil time when it falls suddenly upon them. This wisdom I have also seen under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it, besieged it, and built great snares around it. Now there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that same poor man. Poor man. Then I said, Wisdom is better than strength. Nevertheless, the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are not heard. Words of the wise spoken quietly should be heard, rather than the shout of a ruler of fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. May the Lord add a blessing to his holy word. Amen. Pray, Lord, we come to you now, thanking you for the opportunity again to hear your word. I pray, Lord, that you would bless your word as it's spoken. I pray, Lord, that you would just use me as your instrument to uh, communicate your word to your people and that your people would uh, find the word to be on good ground, on, on a heart that is, will receive the word. Again, Lord, we pray that you would remove all those distractions and that we might focus on your word and what you have to tell us. Bless us during this hour. May you be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. One of the great objections that people have towards the Christian faith is why do good things happen to bad people? Why so much suffering? Why so much pain? What does it mean? Why is God, is God real? Is he true? Why would he allow all these things to happen? Talking to a previous boss of mine, he told me that his, his daughter went on a, a missionary uh, tour and all the suffering that she saw and all of the heartache that she saw that she lost her faith that she couldn't believe anymore because of everything that she saw indeed in this world indeed oftentimes we pause when we see the mass amount of suffering and how unfair life can be at times and how difficult things can how difficult uh it is to live in this world why do bad people succeed and good people suffer why all the frustration? Why all the problems and difficulties that take place? Solomon had these very questions. And he wrote this book of Ecclesiastes to talk about it, to talk about some of the things and some of the things that he saw. Uh, Solomon, saw, Solomon sought to live life apart from God. He sought to enjoy all that life had to offer, all of the um, trappings of life, the money, the, the possessions, women, everything that he tried, he saw it was all vanity. He saw that it was all nothing. It was all worthless, that it didn't mean anything. And so, and then he came to understand what life truly is about. And oftentimes we're not going to get answers that we really need or that we really have. And so, but he asked us to consider a couple of things. Um, and today we're going to talk about those things. And first of all, he tells us to consider this, the providence of God. The providence of God, when you look at this world, the providence of God, according to Westminster Confession, it, it's, it's basically 
uh, God is in charge of every of all the creatures and their lives and their actions and preserving them and caring for them and to his glory. He does it. And so we understand that when we talk about the righteous, we can understand that when we talk about people who do great things. Yeah, God's in charge of them. But what about the wicked? What about those who do terrible things? Well, the Bible says God's in charge of those as well. And that's why uh, Solomon says there in Ecclesiastes that the works of uh, uh, in verse one, he says that the righteous and the wise and their works are in the hands of God. Every single person's uh, works that they do, they're in God's hands. All the suffering, all of the pain, all of it, all the evil acts, all the wicked acts, some of the most heinous, terrible acts are all in the hands of God. Hitler was in the hands of God. Saddam Hussein was in the hands of God. All of these things are in the hands of God. God controls both of them. Can we understand that? No. But he tells us that it's a fact, that God controls both of them, and that the righteous and the wicked are in the hands of the Lord, their lives and the things that they do. And that's why he says not only that, he goes even further in verse 2 where he says that, uh, excuse me, still verse 1, that people know neither love nor hatred to anything they see before them. Now commentators um, interpret that in two ways. The first way uh, some commentators interpret it is that we are fickle in our love and hatred for other people. But uh, I have basically um, favored the second one. Matthew Henry talked about that one where when we look at the gifts that God gives people, we cannot tell if God loves or hates us according to the gifts that he gives. That's what it means. Just because God blesses someone with great gifts doesn't mean that he loves them or that just because he afflicts people doesn't mean that he hates them. And that's oftentimes what we think because a person is blessed with so many different gifts and so many different things. That means that God loves them. That's not true at all because sometimes God hates those or, uh, they're his enemies of those of the gifts that he gives. Oftentimes, the wicked are more blessed than the righteous. When you see who's in charge, when you see who's rich and all these things, it says in 1 Corinthians 1 that not many wise, not many noble, not many rich are called. There are some that are rich. But if you look around, you see who is blessed, who is really uh, has a lot of the gifts, who's rich, who's powerful. Most of the time, it's the wicked who's powerful. They're the ones in charge. They're the ones with the money. They're the ones that's rich and so on. While God's people are often afflicted, are tried, are tempted, are, are struggling, are hurt, and so on. They're the ones that are lacking. They're the ones that need, and, and, and that's what, in Psalm 73, that's why Asaph had such a problem. So God, this doesn't seem fair. The wicked who curse you, who don't follow you, they're the ones that are getting all the blessings, and here I am, struggling. I'm the one that's in trouble and so on. And so Solomon tells us that what you see in the world doesn't necessarily dictate that God is pleased with uh, uh, what's going on in the world. Just because someone is, is gifted, just because someone has blessings, just because someone has money and power, does not necessarily mean that that's the case. It could mean that, we are thankful that God gives us outward blessings. Sometimes outward gifts and blessings are a favor of God's love, but it is how we respond to those blessings and favor. 
And that's what Solomon is talking about. Not to look at the world, but to look at the providential secret hand of God. That's why he says in verse two, all things come alike to all. One event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good, the clean and the unclean. The him who sacrifices, the him who, who worship, who comes to reverend, sovereign grace, OPC, as to the sinner. Uh, Jesus told, uh, Jesus said in Matthew 5 in the Beatitudes that God makes the sun to shine on the righteous and the wicked, on the good and the bad. Yesterday we were driving down Delmar, uh, you know, everyone's at the beach. It was nice and sunny. I'm sure all those people were down there were righteous. Um, and yet God shines his, God uh, shines his sun on them. He causes the harvest to come in, the flocks to come in, all these things he causes for, to both people. And then sometimes even when evil comes, when there's an earthquake, the righteous die like the wicked. When there's a um, storm or a, um, or a hurricane or whatever, a plane crash, a 9-11, whatever takes place, both hap it happens to both. And that's what Solomon is talking about that one event happens to the same. And sometimes it's the righteous that are taken and the wicked that are spared. Sometimes good people are taken and the person who is the most wicked person, a low life who's got nothing uh, good to offer this world, he is spared. Why does that happen? And that's what causes people to pause. And that's why Solomon says we have to leave that in the hands of God that God is in charge and that he's in control. And he says in verse three that because the wicked have all of these blessings, many of them, because they're not being punished, because judgment doesn't happen automatically, he says madness is in their hearts. The more they get, the worse they get. If you've ever seen rich people or people in Hollywood or so on, you see them, how weird they get, how, how, um, how terrible they behave, how their, their behavior gets worse. Oftentimes we think money can cure our evils. Money can help us to get better. It's the opposite. And that's what Solomon is saying, that because for natural man, because God is not instantaneously judging us, because his wrath is not abiding on us immediately, because he's not punishing us at the moment, it emboldens us to even engage in more wicked wickedness it emboldens us to even curse God more to say that God doesn't exist and that's why he says madness is in their hearts why because God is postponing his judgment they think that they run the world they rule the world that there is no judgment so they laugh at God and they mock God and so on because of this postponement of judgment but then he says in verse 4 there is hope even in the secret providence of God says, but for him who is joined to all the living, there is hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. What does he mean by that? Well, lions are stately, ferocious, uh, powerful. They, they're the ruler of the animal kingdom. They're feared. And dogs, on the other hand, are unclean and worthless. Now, in our culture, totally different. I get it. You know, but. But back then, dogs are, were considered unclean. They were considered um, uh, not much of value. Even, you know, me traveling all over the world with the military and so on, you, you, you'll, you'll notice that a lot of dogs, there's not a lot of people with 
dogs as pets. There's a few, but most dogs are stray. Most dogs are outside running. It's a funny story when we were in, it's not funny, but when we were in, um, <laughs> when I was in Honduras, we were out in the field. We were doing this, um, I went with the medical people and they were providing shots and medicine t- uh, to the, the local natives. And, and I remember I had like some eggs or bacon or whatever. And this dog was obviously hungry. So I was feeding this dog. And, and then one of the security guys come up, he says, Chaplin, you can't do that. I said, why not? He said, because those people are hungry. Those people are starving. And they consider it an insult that you would feed an animal before you feed, uh, feed them. And so, um, and so that's what Solomon is talking about here, that it's better to be a live dog who is worthless in that sense than to be a dead lion. And that's what he's saying, that while we're living, there's hope. There's hope that we might change. There's hope that that's why we pray for our loved ones. Even the most wicked person can change. That's the thing. When we're living, there's hope that things can change, that people can change, that things can be different. Who knows what God will do? God changed us. Maybe he can change other people as well. And so that's what he means. And that's why he says that, uh, that uh, to be, he says, for the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no reward for the memory of them is forgotten. When we die, all of our dealings with this world is over. We go to another world. There's no more uh, uh, relationships in this world. When our houses, and we came in here naked, we leave naked. There's nothing that we can take with us. If you sell your house and maybe you love this house and you had your tulips and your plants and you loved your house. And once you sell that house, the house is not yours anymore. You're gone. You have no right to go back and tell the, the, uh, you know, the neighbor, well, why, why'd you gut the kitchen? Well, why did you change this out? Or why did you change that out? It's not your house anymore. And that's what Solomon is talking about here. When we die, this world, we're, we're done with this world anymore. And he says the living has hope that we die. The thing is that we're all going to die. We are all going to die. And death is the great equalizer. We know it's coming. As Vody Barkham says, death is rate is one per person. We don't know when or how, but we know it's going to take place. The Bible says our life is but a vapor. We're here for a moment. We're only here for a second. My grandmother has turned 103 uh, years old here on January the 3rd or 4th, and I posted it on Facebook. They did a big article, and I got a lot of likes from that, too. Got more likes of that than I get for my birthday. But anyway, that's just... <laughs> but people <coughs> but people are really uh, fascinated and amazed that someone makes it to be 100 years old. I read, I didn't know, I read the article on her because the local uh, 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 news media came out, interviewed her, and, and I was reading it, and I was shocked that, you know, at 80, she was walking like four miles a day, and she bought a PT Cruiser at 90, and all these, these great things. I was like, wow, I didn't know that about my grandmother. But, but the thing is this, when you talk to her, she'll tell you how fast life went. That 100 years is like a blink of an eye. And that is life. Life is fast. Life is quick. Life is unstable. We're all going to die. And that's what Solomon is saying here, that the living have hope, because we know we're going to die, and we can do something about it before we die. And that's why the scriptures tell us 
to be prepared to die, to be ready to die, because we don't know when it's coming. Because every day we're, we hear about it. We're bombarded with this person died and that person died and so on. This morning I woke up to an alert that there was a mass shooting in Monterey. Um, even young people, young people, you know, you think about, you know, us, you know, older people. I said older, not old, but, you know, older, older people, you know, uh, you, you, you hear about um, young people die. I did a few weeks ago uh, after Georgia football won the national championship of a player I was driving. He got killed in a car accident. A uh, 25-year-old soccer player died in a boating accident. Uh, you know, it doesn't matter. We have no idea when it's going to take place. But the Bible says we have to be ready to die. Brownlow North, this, this Puritan, he's, um, I, was re- I was listening to his uh, message on, on death, and he makes a point. That, you know, when someone dies, we get notifications or someone will put it on Facebook and you write, sorry for your loss. God give you peace and grace about it. But he says, picture this, that one day it's going to have your name on there. Your spouse or your kids or your parents are going to be saying that you died. It's a reality. Many times we try not to think about it. We try to put it off. But. Solomon says, the living, that's why we think about it now, because we know it's going to happen. You know, we, we, we think about our investments. When you're East Coast, people think about, I'm going to retire and move to Florida. That's, that's where everyone thinks. I'm going to retire and move to Florida. I'm tired of the rat race. I'm tired of living for, you know, just driving all the time and, and all the hard work and everything. I'm just going to retire and move to Florida. That's why... People joke and call Florida God's waiting room, you know, so, <laughs> but it's, uh, you know, but you think about it, first of all, there's no guarantee that you're going to make it today. Secondly, there's no guarantee that you're going to be healthy enough to do it. And thirdly, even so, you might get 20 or 30 years and it's good to invest in retirement. It's good to do those things, but we have to also invest in our eternal home where we're going to be forever. And that's what God is, that's what Solomon is talking about. To think about that this life is a preparation for the next life. And so Solomon says that this life under the sun, the providence of God is, 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 in, is, is in charge here. That we can't always understand everything. But that leads to my second point. He tells us to enjoy life. He tells us not to be depressed, not to um, sit around thinking, oh, it's going to be depressing, I'm going to die. He tells us to enjoy life. While we have it, he says there in verse 7, he says, go eat your bread with joy. In other words, enjoy the things that God has given you. It's your portion. It's what God has given to you. Enjoy your job, your home, your cars, your house. Of course we do it. We give thanks to God. It's different than the world, but the world is just, that's what they live for. But he tells us to enjoy these things that God has given us with thanksgiving. Now, you, th- you think about a lot of times we can enjoy our things because we're upset because we don't have enough or someone's got more than us or someone has uh, something better than us or our neighbor bought a nicer car than us and that bothers us. But Solomon says, no, this is your portion in this world that God has blessed you with. So enjoy it. He says, your bread, 
Not someone else's bread, not bread that was stolen, not bread that was taken from the seat, but the things that God has given you. That's why Paul says, work, let the thief not steal anymore, but let him labor so that he can give to his own and also to the poor. And this is what our life is about. Enjoy our bread with joy. Not to be uh, daydreaming about uh, someone else's life or what we wish we had, but enjoy the things that we have now. Secondly, I find it interesting, he tells us also to look presentable. Let your garments always be white and let your head lack no oil. In other words, I think, have a cheerful disposition. Now, there will be times we're going to be sad, we're going to mourn, we're going to be weeping. The, the Bible is very clear of that. But have some joy, a cheerful disposition. Not always uh, depressed, not always look like you're, I guess, you're sucking on lemons or, you're, you, or, or you look uh, like, you know, you're not happy. But understand, be grateful, be thankful for what you have and let that uh, radiate in your dress and your appearance and so on. This Puritan once told this guy who was, had a long face, he goes, why the long face? You're not in hell. Why the long face? <laughs> you know, I was, you know, when I grew up in a, I grew up in a Baptist church and and the deacon every Sunday would always be, he would open up the the, 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 the uh, service. And the first 15 minutes was thanking God for everything that he had. For the food, the shelter, for waking up. All these things we take for granted. We need to ponder. We need to think. We need to wonder that, wow, God's been good to us. God has blessed us. And we need to remember that in this world of suffering and pain, that there's a lot of blessings that God has given us. And so that even radiates itself in our dress and the way we dress and and our attitude and our mentality and so on. Let people see that, wow, Christianity is attractive. Christ is attractive. Why? Through you. Why? I want to be like that because of your uh, personality, because of your temperament, because of who you are. Let the world see that. That Christianity is not boring. That it's not lifeless. I'm when, before I became a Christian, that's one of the things that stopped me. Well, what am I going to do? Pray all day and read the Bible? That sounds pretty boring. But there's so much more to it. You know, living our lives to the glory of God, working as a Christian, uh, um, our recreation as Christians, you know, enjoying the things that God has given us to the glory of God. The world tells us that Christianity is boring. They're having fun. They're not having fun. True fun is found in following Jesus Christ and following Christianity. The third thing is this is enjoy your wife. Uh Uh-oh, husbands. All right. It says there in verse um, 9, Live joyfully with the wife whom you love all the days of your life, which he has given you under your son. Husband, your wife is a gift that God has given you. That is your gift. Not someone else's wife, your wife. He says, enjoy your wife. Now, we know marriages can be very challenging and very tough, very difficult. Been married over 20 years, so I, I get it, and done a lot of marriage counseling, but we need to work hard on loving our wives and living with our families because this is what God has given us. My wife and I, sometimes we joke when we have a disagreement. He said, no, we're fighting against each other. We already live in a world where there's all types of problems we have to face. Seems like when we come in the house, that should be a time of peace, a time of happiness, a time of joy, a time to... um relax and that is the truth 
God has given us a partner. And as Matthew Henry says, if in the garden before uh, the fall, God saw it was fit to give Adam a wife, how much more so now after the fall? And so the scriptures tell us and Solomon tells us to enjoy our wives, our families, our friends, and so on. And sometimes, as I'll never forget, my pastor, he preached our wedding. He said this, that Satan hates marriage. I didn't really think about it at the time, but no truer words have been found. He is doing everything he can to sabotage your marriage. He's doing everything he can to slander your spouse, to say your spouse is no good, your spouse is terrible, your spouse is the most wicked, awful person in this world. That's what the devil does. He wants you to leave your spouse. He wants to divorce. He wants divorce. He wants, he's looking at the law, the big picture. Maybe if they get a divorce, the kids will, will leave, will fall away from God. They won't follow God because they're looking at their parents and so on. And that's why he says to enjoy the wife you use. That's why the Bible says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Husbands, our blessings often are based on this, on how we treat our wives. That our prayers be not hindered. That's what he, uh, Paul says, I mean, Peter says, and I believe in 1 Peter, 2 Peter, it was a story of a pastor who basically couldn't stand his wife, could not stand her. And he, he resolved, I'm leaving the ministry. Um, I, he says, I, I'm done. I'm, you know, I realize I can't be a minister. I'm divorcing my wife. I'm leaving the ministry. And that was his plan. He went and told the seminary professor who he really looked up to what he was going to do. He thought he would let him know his plan. And he said, the professor looked at him and says, uh, young man, you don't have a choice. God commands you to love your wife. This is not an option for you. He thought about it. He says, you know what? I'm going to do I'm going to do everything I can to love. her. I'm going to, he says, he went to her and told her, he says, I'm, 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 I'm going to try my best to love you. And she didn't believe it at first, but he started doing it. He started not doing the things he wanted to do, but invest in her and find out what she wanted to do. And he says, things changed now. He's still in the ministry and he has a great uh, marriage. And so, um, and so that's why he says, that's why Solomon says that our wives, our husbands, they're gifts that God has given us to each other. You know, oftentimes we think, oh, I made a mistake. I shouldn't have got married to this person. I got married to that person. When it was like, no, this is the person who you should be with. And not only your wife, your family, your friends, this is your portion that God has given you. Good friends, good family. These are the people that God has given you. Kids, your parents are important. Your siblings are important. You don't think that when you're teenagers. I didn't think that. Couldn't wait to leave home. Couldn't wait to get away to go to college. But as you get older, you realize this is who you are. This is where you came from. My uh, wife's um, father used to say, I don't care how mad you get with me your blood still runs through me. And that is the truth in, in a lot of ways. And so God has given us friends and family, and this is our portion of life to, to enjoy each other, the holidays and summertime and do all these things together. It's interesting in the military, uh, watching uh, senior, listening to senior officers like admirals and generals talk. And many times they'll talk to junior officers, officers just started so. I've, I've listened to them many times, and more, uh, more often than not, they'll say this. Make sure you keep that relationship with your family at key. Because in the military, it is so easy to neglect your family and to chase after rank, to chase after power and status and position 
and so on, just like it is in the civilian world. It's a temptation to do that. And he was, and many of the senior officers said, don't do that. Make sure that you, you take time out for your family because after this is all said and done, the world doesn't care that you're a colonel or a general or whatever it is. Your family will be there after all is said and done. And so Solomon is telling us these are the important things in life. Bread with joy, um, family and friends. And then finally he says, work diligently. Work diligently. He says there in verse um, 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there's no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you are going. In other words, we have a limited amount of time in this world. You know, you might lose your money. You might lose your house. You might lose uh, some important things. You can regain those things. But you cannot regain your time. And so the Bible says, Paul says, Ephesians, redeem the time. Why? For the days are evil. Psalm 90, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. We think we have all the time in the world, but we don't. Our time is quickly running out. Jesus says, work while it is day, because night comes when no man can work. The world loves to waste time. They love to just um, do things that and like binge on Netflix and all these other things. Young people, I know you like video games and all these other things you like, but realize this, and I realize that maybe you like to play them, but realize there's more to life than this. The Bible says young people, be sober, be serious, understand the importance of the life that you're living. Prepare now. For marriage, prepare now for what you're going to do. Prepare now for that relationship with God. And that's what he is telling us to do, work diligently. Even us working diligently in the kingdom of God, seeking first the kingdom of God, using our resources for God's kingdom and to help his people and to do these things. Taking time out for Bible reading and prayer and listening to good messages and so on. These are the things that God tells us to do. Work diligently, going to share the gospel, witnessing, doing all these things. Why? Because our time is short. And then finally, it's the value of wisdom. The value of wisdom. Verse 11 to 12, I know you've heard this verse many times. The race is not to the swift, the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to men of understanding, nor favor to men of skill, but time and chance happens to them all. For man does not know his time like fish taking a cruel net. In other words, true wisdom is this, is understanding that life does not always work out the way we plan for it to work out. The best do not always finish first. Just because you have a lot of promise and, and, and a lot of skill and ability, that's no guarantee that God is going to bless you with everything that you want. How many times have our plans been dashed our hopes been dashed maybe at your job you know you were up for that job for vice president and you were by far the most qualified not even a question everyone believed it everyone agrees with it and yet you didn't get the job the person that is far less qualified got the job is that crushing why how i've worked so hard i I did everything that I needed to do. I was by far qualified. Everyone comes up to you and says, you should have gotten that job. 
It leaves us bitter. It leaves a bad taste in our mouths. Understand that Solomon is telling us that all these things are in the hands of God. That doesn't always make sense, but God is in control. The best don't always win. You know, if you watch sports, how many times have you seen this major upset take place, right? That team by far was far inferior to that team, but they won. And we see it over and over again, people in positions, people in power, how they got up there. How, how, did, how did they do it? Ultimately, it's by the secret hand of God. So understand that, that your plans might not always work, that, that there's no guarantee in this life. And then he even talks about that we have no idea when trouble's coming, when trials are coming. He talks about uh, when the evil day will come. We do everything we can to guard against the evil day, but we're not sure when it's going to take place. But the most important thing he tells us is that we need wisdom to live in this world. Wisdom is better than strength. Wisdom is better than a big military. Many people don't listen to godly wisdom. What is wisdom? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That is wisdom. And having wisdom to live in this world, having wisdom to live, wisdom is more important than someone who is strong and powerful. It's more important than money. It's more important than riches. More important than a person with great ability. Wisdom. A poor person's wisdom is far better than, than wisdom of the world. A wisdom of, or, or of the um, people who are rich or people who have great strength or people who are powerful. It's this wisdom that delivers us, this wisdom that cares for us. Um, and I believe it's the second Psalms, second Samuel chapter 20, where Joab had besieged the, the town. It was a, a poor woman that came and negotiated with, um, with Job and took care of the situation so that the whole city was saved. And that's what true wisdom is. And so Solomon tells us that we need wisdom in this world. James says, if we lack wisdom, let us ask of God liberally to live in this difficult world, this hard world, this world where things aren't fair, where things don't always go our way. It is godly wisdom that we need. And this wisdom is a life of faith, of following Jesus, trusting Jesus, living for Christ, and realizing this, that one day we are going to die and we have to stand before God and that should be the thing that drives us and motivates us, that this world is not our home. Yes, we're citizens of this world, but this world is not our home. And the world screams at us every day to forget about the next world and only focus on this world. Every single day, you can have happiness without Christ. You can enjoy yourself without Christ. You can live without Christ. You don't need Christ. You know what we need? We need better politicians. We need uh, more education for kids. We need um, uh, better mental health specialists. Everything except Jesus Christ. Whatever our problems are, we have in this world. The world promises us so many great things which they cannot deliver. The happiness and joy, they say, is found outside of Christ. But as Christians, we must always keep our eyes Focused on Christ. Keep it fixed on Christ. The Bible says without faith, it's impossible to please him. That we are on a journey. And so true wisdom is looking in the word of God, 
reading it, understanding it, how to live in this world, how to live with my family, how to live with my job, how to live with God. Strive to enter into the straight gate. Living in this world, living that this world is a journey and that we are headed to our destination, which is our eternal home. And so many things in this world are unfair. Maybe you, you realize that, that things in this world have not gone the way that you planned or the way that you thought. But Judgment Day is the great equalizer. It's interesting, in our Western culture, we don't really like to hear much about Judgment Day or the wrath of God. We think it's unfair. We don't think it's right. How could a loving God do that? But if you talk to people who are Christians who are being persecuted, who are being jailed, who saw their loved ones die, who are watching their captors now just walk around harassing and killing other people. Their hope is in a judgment day, that God is going to right the wrongs of everything that's taken place to them. That's their hope. And for us, it's also a reminder for us that we must live our lives to the glory of God following Jesus Christ daily. Without faith, it's impossible to follow him, to be like Abraham and Moses, forsake this world and his riches and his goods. Yes, we enjoy them, but our hope and our goals and our dreams are for that next world. And that's what we're striving to follow. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus as your savior, that God has been good to you. But on that last day, you, he will, you will have to give an account for why you abused his gifts that he gave you. And your house and your car are gonna, and all these other things are going to stand in judgment against you. And they're going to be witnesses against you. That he gave you so much and you refused to follow him and serve him. The goodness of God leads to repentance. God's been good to us as Americans. And we owe everything to him. So let us instead flee to Jesus Christ. He is our only hope in this world. Jesus understood everything that we've been going through because he went through it himself. He died. He was treated unfairly. He was treated badly. He did good and evil came. He understands everything. He experienced all the human emotions that we've experienced. And that's why it says in Hebrews, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Let us look to him daily. Let's pray. Lord, we, we thank you for Solomon and Ecclesiastes. We thank you, Lord, for just the reminder of living life in this world, that we must keep our eyes focused on you and fixed on you. And Lord, that even when we get discouraged and confused about why things happen the way they do, help us to understand, Lord, that the secret providence, your secret providence is at hand. And so, Lord, bless us and care for us, Lord, and help us to walk closer to you even in this world. In Jesus' name, amen.